Good day, everybody. If you're joining us online, great to have you with us at Bush Lake. And we understand that West Tonka is meeting this hour in our Prairie Side room on the Chan campus. And know that that's available as we consider that church plant and launch out into the West Tonka region coming up soon. Are you ready to talk about relationships today? Yeah, yeah. I, I need just a little energy and yes around that because, you know, I think about it. These are deep issues. And when I woke up this morning, I go, Man, when you wake up and you just want to have a cup of coffee, the thought of actually coming to talk about relationships, are you in the mood to talk about relationships when you're here? Just say, yes, I'm in the mood. All right, good. Uh, that, help, that helps me. I got off a plane late last night, so I'm with you all the way. <laughs> Let's talk about relationships. We're in the second message of a seven-part series on relationships. What I love about the series, it's about relationships, not just with those who might be dating or getting married, but it's relationships with friends and colleagues. It's parents and grandparents. And we are stepping into this holistic view of relationships with a goal. And the goal is to better understand, to get clarity in our understanding of what makes relationships work well. What is it? What are those ingredients? And then as well, how to nurture them over time with the help of God and the Holy Spirit. We're integrating all of those three. We're using this model called RAM, the Relationship Attachment Model. It was architected by John Van Epp. Dr. John Van Epp was here a few weeks ago. And if you didn't hear the message, he introduced the concept. It's really quite good through biblical research and psychological research and his degree in um, the psychosis part of who we are as people. Identified these five common bonds, our connectors, that are comprising relationships, that make relationships relationships, and each are needed for relationships to work well. Just in review, we talk about the knowing aspect, which talks about the facts that you get to know a person. Usually it takes time, as we'll talk about today, um, to grow in knowledge of who a person truly is, and then to trust that person by the degree by which you believe in what you know in terms of how you relate. It's dynamic, it fluctuates along the way. Reliance is about your your actions, how you actually depend on the person that you've come to trust and know. And commit speaks about that degree of loyalty that you have. There's a range of loyalty and that ebbs and flows over a relationship and then touch as well. I look forward to the last message on touch. We're going to give each week one of these words and unpack it and see how they interface. But I think there's a real need today to talk about some of the sacredness of touch that doesn't oftentimes get addressed. So I look forward to that. What this is doing is giving us a common language. And I'm excited about that because our whole church is embracing this series on relationships. So our kids and our students, our young adults, our married couples, etc., are Looking at these five bonds together, it's a GPS, you could say. It helps us identify where we are currently today in a relationship, but then also helps us now how to grow it from there. And it gives us a common language. And you can use this as a diagnostic that goes beyond the seven-week series. My hope is now you have a language in your family systems, your relationship networks, to speak about this given um, way of relating together using these five bonds. Last week, I opened up with your relationship with God because there's a flow point. The headwaters of God creates the flow by which relationships work. Um, you were made for a relationship. We anchored that in last week, talking about Jesus when he was asked, what is the greatest command? And he said, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and emphasis on the all. Give your all to a relationship with God and 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Do likewise with each other. So the whole frame of reference of the, the Bible is a love story. It's about relationship with God. The filter of relationship is what God speaks into and through from Genesis to Revelation. And there's a flow. Your capacity to love God will have a direct correlation with your capacity to love others. Not that you can't have a good relationship with each other and not have God in your life, but I don't think you can have the great relationship that gets defined by the love that God gives that is so contrarian to our own natural way of loving. And that's what we want to give energy to, um, our expressing um, the headwaters of God's love and its impact on all of us. This much we know. Relationships cannot run themselves. They simply cannot. They require intentionality and sometimes intervention. And learning these five words or these five bonds will give you a language by which you can now grow your relationship moving forward. So we're gonna take time on each of them. Two layers of relationships before I jump into this subject today, which is about knowing, is I wanna talk about the two laws of relationship. First of all, the law of slow leaks. That is, it's normal for all gains in a relationship to deflate over time, requiring new experiences of closeness. That you could feel like, yeah, we've just come off of a season where we're doing really quite well on most of these, and then they begin to deflate a little bit. And that deflation is just a normal part of relationship. It may not be because of anything bad in your life or how you're relating, there's just a natural deflation that requires some intentionality to step back into it. And so, I think about that in terms of my relationship with God as an analogy to this. I've had a lot of years now, decades with God. I know God really well, not perfectly, but I know him really, really well. And yet it creates for me a high level of trust, but I have to still choose to rely. I have to have actions and behaviors in my life by which I show that I'm relying on him. Now, if I wake up on the given day and I choose not to be present with God or to nurture that relationship with God, there's a little deflation. One day isn't too bad, but one day can turn to three days. And in my world, because I know God so well, I'm the most dangerous kind of person because I can talk God with the best of people. I've been trained to do this. I know God so well, but it does not communicate my vital relationship with the Lord. Those three days can turn to three weeks if I'm negligent. They can turn to three months. And what happens is your knowledge of God diminishes, your reliance on God diminishes. There's this fluctuation, and I think in our relationships it's the same way. You can know a person really well, you can just write on the laurels of things are really going well, but then there's this diminishing aspect, this deflation that is just normative in the journey. So counselors generally exist because they're giving counsel to people where the deflation on one of these five, maybe more than one of the five, has been deflated for too long, and you're having a hard time getting it back together again, which is the second law of, of relationships, and that is of regular realignments. That the key to success is that you regularly identify where you have slipped and you improve it. It requires that kind of intentionality. You wanna act before it gets to be um, into that detach detachment phase. Um, we move from a distance phase to a detachment phase. It gets much harder to give energy to relationships. If it's distance you're experiencing, you can recover that um, fairly quickly with some intentionality. 
Last March, I was driving, it was a snowstorm, leaving here at Westwood, making my way home, and I came around a corner and I fishtailed. Have you ever had that experience on an icy road? And the back end of my vehicle and the wheel slammed into the curb really, really hard. I mean, it, it shook me up a bit. I pulled off to the side, checked on it, it seemed fine. Went home, pulled up into the driveway, into uh, the garage, seemed fine. Woke up the next morning, came down and looked. It wasn't flat, but it had been deflated. And so you know what I did? I went and filled it up. And that's fine. And I watched it. And two weeks later, I'm watching, and the, it's deflating again. So you know what I did? I went and filled it up. And I'm watching now in the next two to three weeks, and I'm checking, and I go, it's deflated again. You know what I did? I filled it. That was last March. And that has been my pattern till last September, like a month ago, I fixed it, which seems ridiculous to me. But I go, this is what we do in relationships. It's natural for things to deflate. We just don't want them to stay deflated. So we throw in a little fix here or there, but sometimes it can be fixed. And we're hesitant because I was thinking, I'm gonna have to get a new tire, and new tires are expensive. It was a fix, a small fix, in fact, in that situation. You don't wanna to get to the point where you've deflated over a long period of time, and now you're gonna exit a relationship for a new relationship because it's much more expensive than simply fixing and repairing whatever the deflation is in the relationship at that given time. John Van Epp has a principle for couples who wait too long to realign. I like this principle, and it is um, the principle of the starvation principle, that you feed your relationship only if it is starving. You wait, you let it deflate, and then finally you'll step in. Right, let me use an example for those who are married with young children, because I think you deal with this far more naturally, because having young children is just a high demand, all in kind of thing all of the time. You have to give energy and attention to it. And you're giving your energy and attention, and it gets hectic along the way, and you can tell there's not a connection between you and your spouse the way there once was. You, you can feel the distance um, growing, and you go, this, we, we've got to get together. I don't even feel connected. I don't even know where you're at. Knowledge has gone down in the hectic nature of where you're at. So one of you intervenes, and you create a date night, and you get a babysitter, you spend the money, and you dress up, and you get into the car, and you're going to go have this beautiful date night. You get in the car, and you think, oh, we're going to just reconnect. But it never happens that easily, because that distance is too wide. It takes a little bit to be um, back with the one that you've been with and to engage with each other in meaningful ways. But by the time you go and you have dinner together, you go for a walk, you watch the sunset, and you're coming back and you start to flirt with each other and you can tell, I'm a couple, we're a couple again. And, and it feels good and right. And couples say this to each other after such an experience um, again and again, is we've got to do this again. Why did we take so long? Why do we let it deflate before we intercept it um, all over again? You subconsciously begin to think in the deflation mode that we'll figure it out, we'll pull it together, we'll get that babysitter, but I always tell you, it becomes really risky when that deflation goes on too long. And it takes the intentionality of at least one of you to move that needle forward so that you get into the practice of knowing um, in new ways all over again. So the bottom line is that relationships really don't stagnate. They're either moving forward or they're, they're, you're creating distance. You're moving backwards with them. So those two laws of um, 
this leakage that happens naturally, not, not always because of bad things, just happens, requires a realignment and a recalibration. Well, today, I want to focus on the subject of knowing. You want to have high knowledge, not just low knowledge of a person, but how we enter into relationship matters. If you're just starting to date somebody, you'll find that there's a lower knowledge and you know, and you want to move that thing up to higher knowledge in your personal relationship. So how do we go about knowing someone and growing in that relationship? I want us to practice the three T's, encourage you to do so. It's time, it's talk, it's togetherness. Spend a little time on the first two, mostly in the first two, and a little bit on the end, on the togetherness piece. First of all, you want to invest time. Proverbs 46 gives us this command, be still and know that I am God. That God wants us to know who he is. But he requires us, in order to get there, we have to be still. We have to take time. You have to take a time out in your life to get to know who God is. You have to loosen the grip on the agenda and the striving of your life in order to be present with the Lord. And then you can move into this arena of truly knowing who he is and that you're his beloved. I'm in a small group right now with four different, there's three different guys besides myself. These guys are, they're movers and shakers, they're influencers, and we have a rich time praying together and focusing on God together. But three weeks ago, we decided to try something we'd never done before, and that is to practice seven minutes of silence with God every morning before we began our day and the agenda of the day. Seven minutes, did you hear me? It wasn't 70, it was seven. Seven just seems really doable to me, doesn't it? But it has been a wrestling match for each one of these guys because they have such agendas and, and focus in the course of their day. And so it's, it's been a difficult wrestling match. It wrapped up the end of this last week and we have all re-upped because we felt like we need some time and energy and attention to know how to be silent in the presence of the Lord, to be still to attend, and I think it's the same way for us. To attend, to be present with the ones that we love becomes an important part of the journey. Investing time is important, whether you're just getting acquainted or even if you've been together a long time. Carrie and I have been together for 40 years. It's easy to say, you know, well, we've been together a long time, we know each other, but do you really know each other? Because we all walk through thresholds, and those thresholds change our needs, our circumstances, change um, what's before us. But do we take the time? It's harder when you've been married 40 years to be as intentional than it is um, to just be getting acquainted, because when you're getting acquainted, you've got this huge hunger and appetite. Who are you? Who are you? Along the way, the intentionality goes up the longer you've been together with somebody. So I want to share three ways you can spend time together. Um, through shared experiences, through the 90-day rule if you're dating, and then through the practice of leaving, which is an interesting concept. I'll get to it in a moment. First, through shared experiences over time and a broad range of situations and settings that over that time you want to have the opportunity to have fun moments and calm moments, some chaotic moments and even tense moments. When a couple meets with me and says, man, we were just meant for each other, we've never had a conflict, I go, oh my, you're in big trouble. Can I give you an assignment related to conflicts? <laughs> because you've got to be with people over time in different situations to really get to know who a person is. We tend to start on the shallow end and we find the knowledge is, if you're just getting acquainted with a person, you're getting to know their common likes. So what, what is the, their favorite restaurant, their favorite food, their favorite um, hobbies and activities. But ultimately, you want to make your way to understanding their needs. 
their values, how they make decisions. You just don't go from here to here overnight. You need the time to be able to step into that journey. So the point is, there's no other way to get to know each other unless you have extended time where that can be rounded out. And it's easier to prioritize when you're just meeting, but when you've been married for a while, you have to walk through those thresholds. So I'll hear this from people who've been together for a while, and they're questioning whether they want to continue. And the phrase is, I think I've just fallen out of love with this person. It's become a common phrase. I hear it far too often. But I don't think we fall out of love. I think we fall out of knowing. We don't really know the person in light of changes or circumstances, and we're not intentional to find out what that might look like to meet needs in that given place. And so we kind of separate. Oftentimes that's the case unless they get the help that they need because our needs change. Carrie and I just uh, recently had a conversation because we were put in a different circumstance, in a different place. There's been a reality in our life we have lived with, and I'm not going to share the specifics of it. I don't need to. The principle of it is what I want you to hear. But we have lived in a certain matter of being together for a number of years without ever raising any questions. It's just kind of, you get used to living. We create habits out of some of the things that we do. And uh, essentially, we got into this. And for whatever reason, we went beyond the layer of where we'd been living to get into the why we've been living that way. And it was enlightening, and Carrie said to me, quote, I never knew you felt that way. And I responded, how could you if I didn't put words to it? And I had to reveal that along the way. And so what happened as a result of that is our knowing went up, and the desire to rely and depend on each other in a different way gets elevated. It brings a renewal, a recalibration in the relationship. So we invest time through shared experiences, but also through the 90-day rule. Have you ever heard of the 90-day rule? No, you haven't. All right, if you're saying yes, I think you're lying to me. <laughs> Maybe you're not. You, I just learned about it, but I think it's really enlightening for couples who are just getting to know each other, as I said, the 90-day rule is particularly appropriate for you. Because as you're getting to know each other, as I say, you stay in those places of relative simple knowledge of who you might be and the things that you might have interest. And because there might be commonalities, you go, oh, I like doing that too. I love that food too. Your feeling of trust goes higher than your knowledge. You really haven't learned the need of the person or the values of the person or how they make decisions. But you really like what you see and therefore you allow some level of safety to increase your willingness to enter into some form of touch along the way. And this has become a growing challenge in relationships through the last couple of decades particularly. And the 90-day rule really comes out of this picture. It's a research initiative that tells how facts related to knowing um, get discovered in a 90-day window. The first 90-day window is when you learn things if you're patient to learn them. In fact, during the 90-day um, window, the research indicates that usually there's a characteristic quality that gets introduced in those first 90 days that cause a gasp. <gasps> really? That's who you are? And it causes you to think twice about the relationship. To what degree? It's quite astonishing. 
About half of all dating attraction is significantly altered by some newly found characteristic within a three-month window. Half of the couples, more than half of them, exit the relationship before the end of the 90 days because of the thing that they learned. The knowledge went up that much that made them reconsider whether they should stay in that relationship. So I just want to give a word of encouragement to those who might be dating, getting acquainted. Save the heartache along the way. Don't think about long-term and where it could go. Think about the short-term, the 90-day window, and say, I want to increase all the knowledge I can in that 90 days. It'll serve you better going into that second half, if there is a second half. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And you think about meeting people for the first time, you tend to talk most about the outward appearances. It takes some effort to talk about the inside uh, realities of who a person is, but that's what God looks at. He looks at the inside. He wants us to care about the inside. He wants us to intentionally work toward the heart of understanding how you're wired up and how you believe God is moving through your purposes. So invest in time through those shared experiences, through the 90-day rule if you're just getting acquainted with somebody. And the third one is, I think, for all of us through the practice of leaving which could sound like a traumatic thing that I'm introducing here, it really isn't. Traumatic in one sense maybe because we've gotten, we're creatures of habit. I'm gonna ask you to leave a couple of those habits. One is to leave your phone behind because the nature of phones and the distraction of devices is creating obstacles for us knowing each other well. And our knowing is diminishing because of all of distractions. A professor from Georgetown University spoke to this quite eloquently talking about attention residue. He noticed it from his students who have a hard time thinking deeply about ideas and thinking deeply about relationships because of attention residue. There are so many things in our society today causing us to be pulled away that it's hard for us to think deeply any longer. I find this myself. In my earlier years, I loved reading long, complex articles. Now I find myself more readily satisfied by infographics and a few bullet points along the way. Our whole writing of journals and magazines has changed profoundly because of this attention residue. And I find it as well in the reality of, say, even writing a message. I I spend about 15 hours on a message. It takes me that long, and it requires deep thought. And so I have a bed for my phone. I take this thing that I need in my life in so many ways, but the ding on it, the, the, the people that I relate to, the scope of responsibilities I have, the problems that I'm trying to bring solution to are great, and I'm always drawn. My attention is drawn away from the message prep that's before me, and so I have to put my phone to bed. I've got a place for it. I shut it down, and for an hour window or an hour and a half, I don't look at it at all, and I'm allowed to just go deep, and sometimes that'll go to two hours or three hours. I'm just in a zone. When I'm in the zone, there's no disrupting me. I just keep it in that given place. We have to be able to think deeply or we're in trouble in our relationships and in our knowing. And this is becoming more the norm. The photo that I'm about to put up, when you're with friends, does it look like this? You're just on your devices all of the time, but it's really meaningful friendship. They're close together, they're hanging with each other, but the disconnect is pretty obvious. Or even go into your home. Sometimes it looks like this. Each of the kids and the mom and the dad are there with a phone, and there's a distraction that comes. 
A field study conducted by Pediatrics Journal for um, the Boston Medical Center did this fascinating case statement. They went into fast food restaurants to observe the behavior of people and their devices and how much focus they gave to their cell phones as compared to each other. And they, they went to all these fast food restaurants. This is astonishing to hear. 40 out of 55 families, it was total absorption, not in their relationship with each other, but on their cell phones, total. That they got their food, probably had a few words, and then they're eating and looking at their cell phones, and that's the extent of it. What was astonishing in their finding was to learn that the problem wasn't the younger generation and the kids, it was the parents. And the parents got more absorbed than the kids, and when a child tried to get the attention of mom or dad, they were oftentimes scolded anecdotally. They included that in their, their research. We get that absorbed. So the outcome becomes obvious, that the knowledge, instead of rising, is diminishing. Wouldn't you agree that our knowledge of each other gets diminished sometimes by our technology when we're absorbed? Does that seem like a good common sense? So then the question is, what do we do about that? How do we want to manage that? And the encouragement here is to pay attention, to get a phone bag if you want. So one church that I know of that is going through this five bonds, they, they gave out phone bags to their whole church and said, when you go out to a restaurant, have everybody put in the, the, the bag all of their phones and have some fun with it. But that just seemed like a lot of work to get you a phone bag. I said, get your own. <laughs> get your own phone bag if you want to use a phone bag. I just don't see myself walking around with a bag. You might. I don't know. Um, but I, the idea of it is leave your phone somewhere. Set it aside. It doesn't come out of the pockets. Or get a phone bed for time so you can think deeply. Um, when you go to bed, you don't have the phone close by uh, along the way. Pastor John Diddy here, who heads up our kids' ministry, which, which by the way, our kids, our kids' staff is extraordinary. Can I just tell you, can we give thanks to all of those who volunteers for our kids, our staff, and what they do? I, they blow me away all the time. It makes me want to be 10 again and go hang out with them. They are so good at what they do, but they give this resource to parents or recommend it, navigating our digital world. And I encourage you to pick it up if you've, you're dealing with kids. It, it speaks about the benefits because we know the digital world has a ton of benefits to it, but also to be aware of the dangers that keep us from knowing and relating in healthy and whole ways. I have one more image of you. It's this, could it be you, couple at night? And you're on your devices, back to back, and you're just in a different zone. I'm not here to tell you, it's not my role to tell you how to conduct yourself in the bedroom. I don't claim to have that knowledge. But I would say, um, I know Carrie and I, we got rid of our television in our bedroom some years ago because it was impacting our knowledge. It was diminishing. And it ended up just being on. And it was a distraction, but it created a wall between us. Now we have other devices. <laughs> Not just the TV that we have to navigate, so we have to have these conversations all over again. And I think what I would like to give you is a question. I'd like to give you an assignment. Yes? Yeah, I'm going to give you an assignment. Would you have, uh, take the time to ask the question, is our TV or our devices an obstacle for us knowing each other? Would you have that conversation maybe over lunch? Don't get mad about it. Just have the conversation. That's the goal. Leave the phone behind. And if you can, the technology that allows more knowing. That's the first leap. The second leap, now don't be astonished, is to leave your kids behind. Not unsupervised. I'm not recommending that. 
So just in case, because the pastor said we can leave the kids behind because you have those moments and you really want to leave your kids behind. I'm not saying that at all. They're always supervised. You got that? I don't need a lawsuit right now. Just, I'm saying leave the kids behind. I, I, this is what I mean by this. One of the greatest gifts Carrie and I received when we had our first child, about 28 years of age, um, we went to a class led by Lyndon and Carol Johnson. They're an amazing couple, both professionals. They had seven children. They offered this class. There'd be a hundred young couples in there. It was amazing. Everybody wanted to take the class. They were such full of wisdom and love. But one of their recommendations was, and there was a gasp in the room when they said this, is to leave your kids behind for a week each year and go on vacation, just the two of you. It's like, oh, new baby, I can't leave this child behind. I, you just feel connected to your kids so much so you can't imagine not being with them. But I will tell you, you will learn very quickly, your kids will take everything that you're willing to give to them and a hundred times more than what you have. They just need it and you love them and you want to give it even at the expense of love for each other. It's part of rekindling relationship and keeping it alive, I think really, really good counsel. So discuss these things at home and figure out how you can be together um, in your own personal journey. And then investing time is necessary, but the, I wanna to move to the second T and that is to talk and you'd expect this. I'll be integrating talk into these other five bonds as well, but it's so important that we move into this talk arena so we can go from the shallow end of knowing to the deeper end of knowing each other and experience the intimacy of the soul, the experiential knowledge of a person at its very depth. I think that's God's plan for us. Philippians 2 is really a radical passage. We know it well. Do nothing out of some selfish ambition or in vain conceit. Rather, in humility, because it's going to take that, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is just contrarian kind of counsel. Because we become self-absorbed around our own needs. This word agape, love, in the scripture that refers to Jesus is so powerful. It, it's the love that meets the need of the other when it's not your need. You, you love above and beyond yourself. And we're all willing to meet the need of the other when I get something back. But to meet the need of the, the other when it's not your need, that means you have to know what that need is. You have to be so other-centered that you identify it and you go, I am willing, I am wanting to meet that need. And that moves you to a realm of relationship with God's help that is better and greater than anything you could ever know. And yet it's contrarian. So I want to invite you to talk with your eyes, with your ears, and with your words, briefly on each. With your eyes. There actually is, I just learned this actually, I didn't know this, eye checks is something that I've practiced for many years, Carrie and I have, and I communicate that to young couples as well, but there's this thing called eye gazing that actually has undergone great research. And it moves you toward greater knowledge when you look into each other's eyes. And it's an important thing to do, but we, we, we tend to dart and glance with our eyes rather than look into each other's eyes. That generally, we can handle each other's eyes for about nine seconds. 
And that's a disciplined person. You're really making headway. The recommendation is try to get to 30 or even beyond that because the eyes are the window to the soul. I just recently, a few years ago, was with a guy who was a coach for physical exercise with me. He's a football player. And he was dating a young gal. He's a stud of a guy, too. So I'm asking about this relationship with his gal. And I said, do you ever look her into the eyes when when you're out to eat and when you're together talking? He goes, I don't know. I just never thought about that before. So I said, I want you to think about it. This next week, I'm going to give you an assignment. Try to look into her eyes for 10 seconds. See how it goes. He came back, and he said, I failed miserably. It was really hard. And I said, good, let's try 30 this next week. (laughs) See if we can make it to the 10. And each week, we would talk about how hard it was to do it and why it was so hard. That relationship did not last the 90 days very interesting to me because I think part of it is this inability to look into each other's eyes. We need eye checks and it's such a gift because what happens is you treasure each other differently. If I officiate your wedding, which I'm doing less of these days, but I'll have the bride and the groom, every time I do a wedding I do this, I have them face each other and look into each other's eyes while everybody else is staring at them. It's a very fun moment, first of all. And they're staring at each other and I I just point out the obvious. You've waited to come to this point And I say to the groom, this is God's gift to you. Treasure her, love her, serve her all of your days. And I say to her, the bride, to to say to the groom, this is God's gift to you. Treasure him, love him, serve him all of your days. It's called the attitude of treasuring. Each other is a gift. It makes a difference in terms of any communication or connection. And then eyes also communicate moods. You can look into the eyes of a person and know their mood. Carrie and I, we've been doing this for a long time, this eye check. And I can, we don't have to have words anymore, do we, honey? She says no, because I'm before all of you. She may say yes, other ways. We good? Yeah, good. Okay, we're good. So we, we come into this place, and I, I, I can look into her eyes. I know what she feels. I know what she thinks. I can tell when she doesn't like something I say by just looking into her eyes. I can tell when there's a need unmet. Eye checks become a window to the soul. Practice them. And by the way, hey, there's an upside. Intimacy opens up when you connect with eyes. It opens the door for a sense of attraction and connection along the way. We have a three-day rule. Try to connect with our eyes each day. And uh, if we go three days without, we know that there's some distance. So we want to bring that back because it's a point of staying in touch. If you go beyond three days, distance can grow pretty readily. And then with your ears, state the obvious here, James 1.19, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. It's an axiom that I think is really good. Just because you have an opinion doesn't mean you need to share it. Listen. Because we tend to be quick are slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. So we want to enter into a place where we can listen well. One of the best books I've ever written, uh, read is uh, Dialogue, The Lost Art of Thinking Together by William Isaacs. He has four practices. I put them on the screen. And they're simply to listen, to suspend, to respect, to voice. And voicing comes last. So listen with the goal of understanding. And what he does, in my mind, I picture it this way. I have my opinions. You have your opinions. I have to step from behind the wall of my opinions into no man's land and feel vulnerable with humility. Step over into your side of the wall to try and understand why do you think the way you think. And it requires a listening that gets me there. And then once I'm on this side, to suspend my, loosen my conviction about it in order to... Um, attend to you. And then to respect doesn't mean to agree, just 
postures me to voice and to voice well and to voice last. So I encourage you to put words to feelings. I'm going to unpack something Carrie and I are practicing right now next week um, called coupled dialogue. And it, it takes three different aspects of communication that helps you get to the layers of knowing in a deep way. That's next week. Let me wrap up with you at Ignite Togetherness. And it's just saying togetherness is part of the formula. You need time, you need to talk, you need togetherness, again, in those different places to grow in understanding. Take the formula, Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And actually that text, I gotta keep it in context, is about confronting somebody on sin in their relationship. That's what it's about. But it also defers, I think, to the reality of being together. When he is with us, we're together in his name. Something happens in our connection that is a God connection that gives us the flow to be right with each other. So we encourage you to get involved with a small group so you can have those connecting points. Those small groups, we did 36 new groups this last week around the series. You can still get involved, go to the website. We'd be glad to connect with you there. Well, we need to be done. So I'm gonna invite you to stand and let's pray and give thanks for the privilege of knowing God. Father God, thank you for making yourself known to us. What a gift it is that we get to know you revealed by Jesus Christ to have that personal relationship and to learn that the story of your word is a love story that helps us not just to know and to love you, but to be known by you and to love those in our spheres of influence. And you provide a gateway for us to do that best. So I pray that through this series, you would help us to grow in knowledge of you and each other, deepen our bond of affection with you and with each other, and do miracles in these weeks that we're speaking about this such important subject and renew relationships. If they're dead, bring them back to life. If they simply need to be refreshed, Father, give the motivation to move in that direction. And we'll give you glory for that all the way in Jesus' name. Amen.